and lovingly put all of our sins on himself. Can you, I just can't imagine that. It's like, just, just, just for a second, pretend that you are perfect. If we can't even do that. But literally, in a sense, Christ would be like, or we would be like, yeah, Hitler, I'll take all of your sins and put them on my account. And you are free. Now, obviously, that did not happen to Hitler. But he sinned just as we do. And he put it all on himself. Just, it's fantastic what he did. It truly is. All right. We do not have an overhead today. And we do not, I did not give you the hymn of the month for next week. Um, I am seriously thinking about having two hymns of the month. <clears throat> and the reason is, is this song that we just sent, or that we just watched over um, taking of the offering. And then we have a child's Christmas song that is, uh, we were going to learn. So I'm not sure what we're going to do. But thank you for telling me that because last time it was not. All right. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them with me and turn to Romans chapter 14. Two weeks ago, we taught through verses 1 through 4. I struggled mightily through that passage. It's a difficult passage because it's dealing with uh, legalism. And unbridled freedom, those would be the extremes. How many understand that? Some of you may not. Let me explain that. Legalism says, sure, you're saved by grace through faith, but, 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 your hair should be above your ears. Your dress should be to your knees. You should be circumcised or baptized as an infant. And, and the list goes on and on. Those were almost as if they are added to the gospel. How many understand that? That would be legalism. Now, their legalism comes in many different stripes. And they would say, well, we don't say that's about salvation. But yet, if you have your hair too long, you're out of here. Whatever that means. That would be legalism. That would be an extreme Sometimes people, Christians, want to hold to those things because it makes them feel better as a Christian. How many understand that? They wouldn't say that's part of salvation, but yeah, I look more like one, and so I kind of hold to that. Um, They would be the ones that Paul would say to uh, to the Romans or to any pagan society, um, I understand that you don't want to eat that meat offered to idols because you know what happens in those ceremonies. The prostitution, the, the drunkenness, and the list goes on and on. Therefore, you're weak in that, but you have grown up that way, and I get it. I'm not going to condemn you. And matter of fact, I won't eat that meat either because I do not want to offend you. So that's the weak realm. Legalism being the extreme of that weakness. The eating of the meat or not eating of the meat would not be the extreme, but the conscience of that person, right? I don't want to do that because it brings back all these memories. And that would be not the extreme, but the weak Christian. And on the other side, we'd have unbridled freedom. I was just 
one of the things, I got to spend two days out west in the mountains of Montana. I, I truly enjoy that. And every night I had, um, one night we had a, a big party with a bunch of people that I love there, and we sat and talked theology for hours. And one of the things that came up is one of my dear friends is, is going to a brewery to play an instrument that he plays. And um, I, I talked to him, I said, is that best? I, I'm asking, I'm not judging you at all. There's nothing wrong with him doing that. But in that conversation, because it was a brewery, he said, well, I, I, my friends that I went to Christian college with have the freedom to drink, which biblically, I will tell you this, biblically, um, you cannot find a passage where it says that it's a sin to drink alcohol. How many understand that? That is not found in Scripture. But here's what's going on, and I've seen it all over in schools. With his testimony, he said, my friends have taken that freedom, which they have, and here's the words that made me cry or weep. They are now enslaved by that freedom. I'm going to understand that. So it's not that alcohol sin. There is nothing said in Scripture about that. But to be enslaved by something is. How many... You, or be drunken with it, whatever you can. And, and, and that is the, um, the extreme of the freedom idea. I can do this. I'm just going to go ahead and run into it. And here we go. And, and that's not right. We're not talking about extremes here. We're talking about within the realm, there are weak Christians and strong Christians. And in that aspect. We need to not judge one another. Amen. If you see one of a Christian with a, a beer in his hand, oh, you are going to hell. No, that's not true. That's ridiculous. But that is a weak judgment of another strong Christian, right? And, and, and the same goes both ways. Come on, I'm just going to flaunt my freedom. Well, that's not right either. That's wickedness. Don't judge, don't flaunt. And we'll come to an, a passage of Scripture where it talks about, maybe, maybe you know this one, it were better that a millstone be hung around your neck and you were thrown into the depths of the sea if you hinder, hurt the weaker Christian. So strong Christians, you have a greater responsibility. And we have to be very careful about all of this because, folks, people call them gray areas and I understand why they would say that. But the reality is, we Christians are not to judge. Strong Christians are not to arrogantly flaunt. And both of those are true and that's what's being dealt with in this text. Because to be honest with you, if you judge or if you flaunt, let me ask you, is where is the love? The love is on self. A weak Christian sits there and judges the strong Christian because I've got it right and I love myself and my religion. The weak or the strong would say, did I say weak for that last thing? Okay, good. The strong would say, I have my freedom, and it's all about me, so watch me right here. And literally, I know a pastor that did that in the pulpit to prove in his mind that it's great. Here's the problem. If my... and. I'm, please get me, take me correctly. I'm not saying that drinking beer, alcohol is wrong. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is you must be extremely careful 
Because if any of my uncles were in here, or cousins, that would not help them in their spiritual life at all. Now they have an okay to go out and carouse. How many understand that? And I mean, one of my cousins is sitting right here. We know exactly what we're talking about. It is so dangerous to other people. We don't hurt others. That's the issue. But when we flaunt that, again, are we loving ourselves or loving them? That's the issue. And the whole thing in Romans chapter 12 and 13 is about love. And now 14. It's all premised on the foundation of love. All right. Does that make sense? That needs to be a, a, a precept before we get there to explain what's going on. Now, accept the one who is weak in the faith but not for the purpose of passing judgment. It begins by addressing the strong, exhorting them to accept the weak in faith and not quarrel over scruples of the weak. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It is not a hill to die on. Amen. Verse 2, one person who has faith, that he may eat all things. But he who is weak eats vegetables only. Verse 2 elaborates on and explains verses, verse 1. So that we learn that the weak, referred to in verse 1, refers us to eat meat, whereas the strong feel free to eat anything. After providing an explanation of verse 2, Paul then returns to the exhortations in verse 3. Verse 3. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. And you can put in there a lot of different things. They're talking about eating, but you can put in there a lot of things. You could put in alcohol in there. You literally could. The reality is... We don't judge one another on unsinful things. We do keep other, each other accountable over sinful things. Amen. So in verse 3, he exhorts the strong not to despise the weak and the weak not to judge the strong. I remember this very clearly over and over my head. I still don't know how I do it. I'd like to think I'd know how I'd deal with it, but when I was a youth pastor in Wisconsin, we would play a school that refused the boys to wear shorts in soccer. How many understand that? How many think that's, what? This is one of these areas. They refused to let the boys wear shorts for soccer games, and we would play them. I was the coach. The principal would every year come to me, Tim, you have to make them wear pants. No, no, I am going to be in their face and say, you guys know what you're talking about and wear shorts. Now let me ask you, was I being loving? Not at all, not at all. That's, that's the issue. Now. Obviously, we don't say shorts are sin and whatever. But this is exactly what we're talking about. Verse 4, who are you to judge the servant of another? Ooh. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Who are they the servant of? God. So in other words, who are you to judge my kid? Parents would never say that. God says it. To his master, to his own master, he stands or falls. I will deal with this. He's my child. I will deal with this. He will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. He is one of mine. Verse 4 addresses the weak. Here Paul drives home the reason why the weak are not judged by the strong. God has accepted the strong and therefore it is quite inappropriate for the weak to usurp God's place and stand in judgment over the strong. 
since whether the strong stand or fall depends on God and God alone. The, the verse is then rounded out by an assurance that the strong will surely stand, for God will provide them the strength to do so. Paul's particular comments to the weak end with verse 4, and he turns again to the division in the community in verse 5. That was two weeks ago. How many got all that? Great, good, we're on to five. Okay, verse 5. One person regards one day over another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Wow, this, this verse really hits home of what's being is trying to be said. This is the verse. Here, he does not give exhortation, but explains the nature of the differences and why such differences are acceptable. The disagreements do not relate only to food, but also to observances of days. And in particular, the big deal here, everybody knew it then, here not so much. How many have gone to the, to the Jewish temple these days in Grand Rapids? Let me ask you, is there a Jewish temple in Grand Rapids? No. So you would not get this, right? This would not be, but to them they would, because why? Every Jewish person knows that what? Saturday is sacred. That is the greatest day in the world is Saturday. And they would make rules to make it just so uh, perfect and that no one could walk. You could only walk like, I don't know how many steps and, and you could, uh, all these rules were there to make Sabbath. That was the day, the most important day. Now comes Christians, which day is to them sacred. Now it's Sunday. So we have the Jews say Saturday, the, 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 the Christians say Sunday, and, and, and the Christians say, I don't want to be like the Jews, but Sunday, <laughs> right? We look at the Jews and say, you guys are, don't live, and here's where Galatians 4 comes in. Don't live back in the elementary stuff, right? All those rules, that's not, it's not about that. Now, it's not sin, but that's not where we're at. But they did Saturday, and then and Christians would look and say, you guys are, what? <sighs> Saturday. Don't they know? Sunday's the most important day. Really? So if Saturday and Sunday are the most important day to God and Jesus in their depiction, then why in the world is there Monday through Friday? Why do they even exist? Is that a fair question? That gets us to the idea that, well, Sunday we got to put on our best. By the way, I do not wear this to work. And matter of fact, I've had people from our church at Home Depot look at me and say, I didn't even recognize you. <laughs> the reality is we serve God Sunday to Sunday. Every single day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we are serving God. And this is the this comes out of this text. The weak look at one day as more important than the other. Oh, it's Sunday. We got to look our best. We cannot talk bad. We must behave. I thank you for all doing that. But the reality is, what about Monday? Do we not do our best Monday? Do we not do or do we not do our best Tuesday and all the way through? Or is Sunday the only one that matters? The strong looks at all days as the same. Listen, I glorify God Monday just like I glorify God Sunday. Now, we're going to get into this a little bit and it's it's it gets complex, so I have to be careful here. I'm going to pose, I'm going to, I'm going to wait till I get there because I'm going to get ahead of myself. <clears throat> Paul never says anything against looking at Jewish Sabbath negatively. He doesn't say anything about that. Or Christian Sunday negatively. He certainly does not accuse either of them of sin. Both options are permissible according to Paul. Every person must be fully convinced how, according to the text, 
in their mind. Listen, when we do things because we are told we have to, how does that work? Could you imagine a church full of people that want to be there? Now, as parents, you should require that your children be in church because you need to train them up in the way they should go. What they do after that is up to them. But every person must be fully convinced in his or her mind, and we'll get to that part. Uh, Paul was heartbroken over the church of Galatia, which we just read. I'm going to read the last three verses just so you understand it. That's why we're here in the text that Scott read. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless sentimental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years I fear for you that perhaps I have labored in vain. You just aren't getting it. That's what Paul was saying to the church of Galatia. In Colossians, he was doing the same thing. Colossians chapter 2, it says, Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Those were the things that were mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It's the same issue that he was dealing with in Galatia and in Colossae, and now he's talking about it to the Romans. And to the Romans, he's specifically talking about it because of the Jewish Gentile conflict that's going on there. And it's deal. How many know the Jewish conflict? Some of you do. Claudius threw all the Jews out of Rome. All the Jews were thrown out of Rome, totally. So the only church that was left were Gentilic. And that happened for years. As soon as Claudius died, that edict was reversed, because that's how it happens. And then all the, all the Jews came back, and they came back to Gentile churches, the background of a Jewish religious person and, and the background of a Gentile religious person are black and white. Why do we need that? We don't need that in a church. We just, Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. Amen. He rose again. According, what else matters? What, what, what's that thing for? What's that for? Those are Jewish carryovers into the church. How many get this? And, and so there was a fight going on, and the fight caused Claudius to throw them out. And when they came back, now the whole, all their churches are Gentile motivated. And it just was going, I mean, their heads were exploding. That's why he's writing this, by the way. Practically, what day is most important? What day is the most important day to you? Well, you already gave us a hint. If we want to be strong, we're going to say every day. If we're going to say week, I'm going to week, it's one day. Every day is important, right? Every day is important. Some would say that Sunday is because that is when Christians worship God. Some would say Saturday for that is when Jewish people worship God. Some would say every day for that is when we all worship God. Technically, all those answers are not truly correct. I generally have understood service, glory, and worship of God all are synonymous. Now let me ask you, in a Sunday morning worship service, do we worship God differently than what we would Monday? Yes or no? We do. What do we do? We meditate on songs, right? Now, can we do that during our work day? Some of you can or can't, depending on your work, right? We, we, we encourage each other and use our gifts to hold each other up or keep each other accountable. Amen? 
Does that happen on Monday? Well, it may or may not, but certainly on Sunday it can. We meditate on the preaching of the Word. Now, let me ask you this. Is that happening on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, usually? Well, in some cases we're listening to the sermons, but most of the time that's not happening because here's the reality. When you're the keeper of Biden's briefcase with the button on it, you better not be meditating on God and His Word while that's happening to do your job. How many understand that? Anybody understand that at all? <laughs> the reality is you've been given a vocation to do and you to do it the best you can for God's glory. Can that be called worshiping God? It can be, but in a technical sense, probably not. Is it a glory to God? Is it serving God? Both of those are true. But worship service on a Sunday is different than on Monday. I understood these as synonymous, generally speaking, and, and truly they are not. And although it is a blurry issue, and it is, it is one that deserves some study. What is the difference between serving God and worshiping God? What is the difference? What is the difference between glorifying God and worshiping God? Is there a difference? Today we cannot exhaust this study, but we issue does matter, for if worship is service, then we never stop worshiping God. Then every day is equally important. Look at some of the facts and verses. Worship is service to God. Therefore, it is right to say that we go to worship services, like today. But is all service truly worship? That's the question. In a sense, we do serve what or who we worship, but it would be hard to express when we're plowing, guitar playing, eating hamburgers is like we worship on Sunday. How many understand that? Do we get that? We're not worshiping the same way. We are serving, we're glorifying, no question. Can we glorify God by eating a bacon cheeseburger? Absolutely. Whether therefore you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we certainly can glorify Him, but can we worship Him by doing it like we do in church? I don't think that's... They're, 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 they're similar, but they're distinctly different. When you are eating that bacon cheeseburger, you're not meditating on God and His Word, are you? You're tasting that. Now, you, you're going to give God the glory because, wow, that thing tastes awesome if there's bacon in it. Right? <laughs> but we're not worshiping God as if we're worshiping here. There, there are very similar, and I would we'll get to what I'm going to at the end. We can certainly glorify God in everything we do, but worship has a meditative aspect that eating a cheeseburger does not have. All worship is service, but not all service is worship. How many are following this? All worship is service. We're serving the Lord right here. We're worshiping Him. And that is service. But not all of our service is worship as we know it like today. Worship does not occur accidentally without the realization of the participant and that worship is not continuous. How do we know that? How many would like some verses that show that? Let's do some of that. Genesis chapter 22 verses 1 through 5 is one of them. The Bible says, Abraham climbed a mountain to worship on its summit. Okay, so he climbed a mountain. Was he worshiping according to the text while he was climbing? Yes or no? No. He was climbing the mountain to do what? To worship on its summit. And then, 
after worship, he returned to his base camp at the foot of mountains. Now, was he serving God by climbing that mountain? Yeah, I'm serving him because I'm going to go worship him. But I'm going to go worship him. So that's, that would be Abraham. David, David, very similar. When David learned that his baby had died, he bathed, he changed his clothes, he went into the house of Jehovah, and what did he do? Worshipped. So all that other stuff wasn't worship. Was it service? Service for worship eventually, yes. In Acts chapter 8, we have a New Testament example. When, this is talking about the Ethiopian, and when, and when he had worshipped, he returned home and ate, I'm sorry, my bad. The Ethiopian had been to Jerusalem to do what? Worship, time and a place. So we have Abraham, time and a place worship. David, time and a place worship. And then we have Ethiopian eunuch, time and a place worship. Now, here's the problem. How many have an RSV, an NASV, or an NIV in your hands? Okay, I'm not going to call you a heretic because you're not. We have different translations that hinder our thinking on this. One writer states it this way, some have apparently been misled by some new translations that have removed the word service in Romans chapter 12, 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable, what? Service. Some Bibles don't say that. Some translations don't say that. It says your worship is, in, is, is there instead of service. How many understand that? Now, worship and service can be, that Greek word is mutual throughout the text. Most of the time, it's service. Some of the times, it is talking about worship. Here's the problem, and I'll read them to you. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, this is the NIV, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Here's the issue. Romans chapter 12, 1 is how our theology impacts everyday life. Is it not? That's exactly where it is. And what it looks like in that translation is that your everyday life is a worship to God. Now here, I understand what they're trying to say, but that's not the best type of word to use. That's why not all translators use it. Here's another one. The NRSV says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Again, making worship every day. ESV, how many have an ESV? Most people have ESVs. It, it says the exact same thing. Which is your spiritual worship. Now, I'm not here to pick apart different translations. But I will tell you this. In this text, the best translation that I see is in the NASB. Listen to what it says. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. How many see the difference? What it's saying is, this is a subset. This it is a service. Remember, the issue is, all worship is service, but not all service is worship. Did you follow that? This is something new probably for many of us, and we need to think through this. It is true that in certain contexts, the Greek word in Romans 12, 1, latrio, is 
properly rendered as worship, as in Romans 9, 4. But in itself, the word only means to serve. Whether the service is towards God or men, sometimes the word refers to a lifetime of service to God. <clears throat> and the context of Romans 12, 1 shows one's offering his body as a living sacrifice is a lifetime service, not of meditation. This is where the, the, the guys in Tibet got it wrong, right? The monks, how many know what I'm talking about? Hum, y'all heard that, right? I'm sure y'all heard that in some movie. <laughs> oh, the monks are singing, right? It was all meditation, 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 meditation. Listen, that truly is equal with worship. I get it. Service could be having somebody... This, as I have said, deserves much more study. Regardless, we at this moment are worshiping in song together, meditating on Him. We are worshiping on giving as we are giving our offerings to Him. We are meditating on Him. We are meditating on Him in His Word, therefore worshiping right now. Although every Christian is certainly in full-time service to God, we are not serving through worship every second of every hour of every day. Does that make sense? So technically, we are serving, not worshiping on Monday, but we're still serving God. Now, why is that so important? The reality is we serve always what we worship. I want you to understand that. We serve what we worship. This is where weak Christians can get in a lot of trouble. This is where strong Christians can get in a lot of trouble. When we serve what we worship, they are serving their legalism. They are serving their free-for-all freedom. Does that make sense? And if you're going, if those are your things that you're just so cool about, that's what you're going to serve in your entire life, and you will not be helpful for the Lord. It will be abysmal. Serving is an action you do for someone. But, and, and here's my main point, it is possible to serve someone without worshiping him or her. Think about the last time you ministered to someone. Are you worshiping them? No. Therefore, attitude and heart is required when serving God, even if serving at the church. But now let's look at what the world trans how the world translates worship, what it means. It means to kiss the hand of, to pay homage to, to bow down before someone as a symbol of deep reverence and respect. There is a difference between serving and worshiping just by looking at the definitions. One only kisses the hand or bows down to royalty, i.e. God, the king of the highest throne. The word worship comes from the old English word worthship, which basically means the ascribing of value and worth to someone or something. <coughs> Honor God to someone in recognition of their merit. When we worship God, we should be acknowledging His worth. He is sovereign. Whole church should say amen. He is king of kings. Amen. When we worship God, we, we should be acknowledging His worth and making Him known. Know it through the attitude of our heart. Worship involves the action of acknowledging someone's worth and as a result, serving them. I will tell you this, as a result of knowing God, He alone is worthy of our worship. Amen? And that's where that song comes from, worthy of our worship. By the way, the, the, remember, on, on, these two, on these two things hold the whole law in the Scripture. What are those two things? Love the Lord God, you're all with all your heart. 
Love others as yourself. Notice it doesn't say worship others. It says love them. It says serve them. Difference. <clears throat> Notice how Jesus told what Jesus told Satan when when they were on the uh, during his uh, temptation. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Actually breaks it down. Jesus used both words in the same sentence. His words imply that God not only wants people to serve him, but also to worship him. Perhaps this shows the two are different, although related. Worshiping God is a matter of the heart, and we find that in the text that we're in. The fact that we are serving in our churches does not because I have no idea where your heart is. I've been the song leader for 30 years. Do you love the Lord? Do you see the difference? Doing a job or serving our God? There's a difference there. A typical Sunday may be filled with people serving in all areas, from child care to even the worship songs, but not all, not a soul in the church be actively worshiping God. They're just doing their, their tasks. Not one person be ascribing worth to God and praising Him for who He is and what He has done in our lives. And not one person be thinking about their Savior, preoccupied with the task at hand and their rote service in the church. I'm, I'm talking about a story you might know of. How many remember Mary and Martha? That's exactly what happened. Here's Jesus, God Almighty, sitting in their house. And Mary gets all ticked at Martha because she ain't helping him. She ain't helping her with the dishes. <laughs> and Martha breaks over, remember, the, the, the ointment and fill, all covers him. Why? She wanted to worship God. Oh, no, we're serving him. Do you see the difference? There is a perfect difference between worship and serving. It is impossible to serve someone without worshiping Him. In some sense, that's understandable. But it is difficult to worship someone, God, without desiring to serve Him in some way. We have to... And, and by the way, I think... Just like liturgical churches, many people come to church... Because it's what we do. Is that a reason to come to church? We need to repent, be thankful, be prayerful, be praise-filled and worshipful hearts toward God. And then allow our service to flow out of our heart and minds already established in that attitude. You have to have a worshipful attitude for your service to be acceptable. Therefore, if your service deems dull, check your heart. And we'll deal with this even more as we flesh that out in later times. But the text then says, by the way, why is this all important about this worship thing? Because legalists and freedom over freedom guys are showing that they're worshiping those things other than God. In essence, you could be worshiping the dress code, the music style. How many get this? As a weak Christian, those could be your God and not God. And in the end, in those, those that are ultimate freedom to do whatever they want, they could be worshiping that very freedom. I don't care about you. I can do whatever I want. Both of them are dealing with this very issue of worship and i.e. as a result, service. Now, each person, the Bible says, must be fully convinced in his own mind. Our mind, purpose, motives matter. Amen? Motives matter. Our mind includes the heart and conscience. Why do we do what we do? This is our deepest convictions and motives. It is not about doing something or saying something. It's about why you are doing this. The song service. We get to a song service. There's great words about God. And we 
simply mouth the words because we heard it so many times. Is that worshiping or not? It's not. In many senses, most Christians are extremely weak, not focused on who God truly is. Its motives matter. Verse 6 then explains it well. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. There's the motivation. Each day is for the Lord. So let's get out there and do it. Amen. Today I get to serve Him. On Monday I get to serve Him the whole day. Sunday I not only get to serve Him, I get to worship Him too. And he who eats does so for the Lord. Now, this is a horrible passage to preach after Thanksgiving. But let me ask you, it is thankfulness, it is thanksgiving, or is it gluttony? I have no idea. I wasn't at any of your homes, and you weren't at my home. We actually worked, but <laughs> the reality is, I think too many times we Americanize what we shouldn't Americanize. The only reason this country is here is by the grace of God, and we need to be thankful for that. Could you imagine living anywhere else? This is where God has graciously given us to live. So, he who observes a day, observes it for the Lord. Praise God. He who eats, does it for the Lord. Amen. Glory to the Lord. He who gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Well, I can't eat that meat, but praise God, I love him. I'm going to eat the Brussels sprouts. Woohoo! <laughs> I would say that. I love Brussels sprouts. <laughs> and I love olives. I also like steak. But I realize that there are Christians, at least during this time, that didn't want anything to do with that steak. That smell reminded them of the drunken orgies. Now, just think of that. The smell reminded them of the drunken orgies. This maybe everybody will get. <clears throat> How many of you... I'm not going to ask. There are many people who have smoked in their lives. And there are most of those people, they want to quit smoking. But when they get around somebody with that smell... Does that help or hinder their stopping? I know what it does. I've seen it. They want to do it. If you're on, and by the way, I don't know if you know this, but do you know, do you know Charles Spurgeon? Charles Spurgeon, I would say he's one of the best, greatest preachers of our era, quote unquote. Yeah. He smoked a cigar. Is smoking a sin? Well, the Bible doesn't say it is sin. Well, let me ask you, is it a sin for someone that is habitual and is dying from it and it will not? Has it ruled them? Yes, it is. For that person that's trying to get rid of that, how horrible is it if you as the strong person who can smoke and then come back and forget it, doesn't even have to do it for two weeks, with all that smell, come and give him a hug. Let me ask you, who is hurting the weaker brother? How many get this? It's not about us. It's about them. It's about them. And that's what this text is saying. Again, the weaker believes... <clears throat> this, MacArthur explains verse 6 this way. He says, The sincere weaker brother who observes the day, observes it for the Lord... Even though he's a weaker brother, he's still there for the Lord. It's all about him. The sincere, stronger brother who eats the meat does it for the Lord. He gives thanks to the Lord for it. And again, the weaker believer who eats not, he doesn't eat the steak. He only eats the vegetables. This is giving thanks to God for the same reason as the one who does eat it. It is not sin. These are not. But it can be. Because John, James chapter 4, verse 7, 
says this, Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does it not, to him, what? It is sin. You see, we can make up sins every day of our lives. It is also sin to impose your convictions on someone else. That's sin. I would dare say most fundamentalists, that is the problem. They take their convictions and impose it on somebody else because they think that's more godly or less sinful or whatever. That alone is sin. How many of you have convictions about what the text says and you have that in your heart and you'll never lose those things? Praise God for those. But if it's sin or not, if it's not sin, do not, do not, do not impose them on somebody else. What are you wearing that for? That's so ungodly. Oh, you're not wearing a dress to this church? Back in the back, there's a closet with dresses. Put it on. What? That's insane. That is sin. Believe it or not, I found a couple things out this last week when I was listening. (laughs) Okay, I spent five days on black ice roads. I listened a lot. And one of those, it was, do you know where coming down the aisle comes from? How many have ever heard of coming down the aisle? How many know what that means? <laughs> they base that on Zacchaeus. Come down here. That, that's their basis. Now let me ask you, is that a strong biblical basis? No. It's tradition. Is there anything wrong with it? There can be. Here's another one. Do you know why? I'll never forget this. Do you know why uh, they believe that girls should always wear dresses? Dresses are the, you have to wear a dress. They go back to the Levitical priesthood where it talks about not wearing priest's clothing or clothing of the opposite person. Therefore, pants are wrong or sinful because of that. Is that a strong biblical argument? Not at all. But I will tell you, many young people have grown up in that culture. We don't beat them head or beat them over the head or judge them. We help them in Scripture, right? <clears throat> Do not compromise your own conscience in order to conform to the conscience of another believer. Do not attempt to lead another believer to compromise his conscience to conform to yours. Amen? This is what you know of Scripture. You stand before God, your buddy doesn't. That's why the text is so important to him that knows the right to do and does it not. Very important. 1 Corinthians 8 helps all of us understand the main onus, if you will, on the strong, that the main onus is on the strong. But the weak are also not let off the hook to judge. 1 Corinthians 8 says this. Now, concerning things, I'm just going to get specific, Paul is saying. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Amen, 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 and amen. That's absolutely to the the strong Christians. A strong Christian knows that he doesn't know. Got it? (laughs) Because the more he learns in Scripture, the more he knows he needs to learn more. And that's exactly what that text is saying. Verse 3, but... Anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, concerning eating of the things offered, sac- things sacrificed to idols, 
We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. We know that that is fake. That is fake God. Amen? There is no such thing as an idol. And that there is no God but one. We know that. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. And here's where he's getting to the, I believe, the um, uh, literal versus the allegorical type. Now let me ask you, do men in this world worship gods other than the God? Yes, absolutely. That's allegorical. That's spiritual. That's happens. That's it's real. <clears throat> and this is so hard for some to get. We, I won't even go into that. But anyways, this is where the verse is so clear. For even if there were so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. In other words, we hold things up to be gods that aren't gods. That's what he's saying. Yet, for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some have been accustomed to the idol until now. Eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. All they've ever known is this. They, I mean, they smell the gristle of the, of the steak and they're like, oh, get me away from here. I want to throw up. It's so disgusting to them. It's hurtful to them because they are putting that with the orgies and the wickedness that was happening. That's exactly what he's saying. The conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are neither worse if we do not eat, nor better if we eat. So, in essence, there's nothing. It's just a pink hunk of meat, literally. It's, it's, it's not, it's benign. It's not sin or not sin. It's just benign. It's nothing. We get that. And then he goes on to say, so he's expressing how the weak look at it, expressing how the strong look at it, then he says, but take care. And now he's talking to the strong. Take care that this liberty of yours, to eat that steak that is horrendously gross to many people, especially to the Gentiles of that time, is someone's... Uh, be, uh, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In other words, don't you dare hurt them. This is what they grew up in. This is what they understand. Don't be a stumbling block. In verse 10, then he starts explaining it. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things offered to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for those whose sake Christ dies. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when he is weak, you sin against... Did you see what he just said in all of that? He said, listen, these guys are weak. These guys are in a bad state. Don't flaunt your liberty. And if you do, you're not just hurting them. You're, you're going against me. Oh, that's bad. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, this is Paul's conviction here. If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. Wow. It's pretty important. So that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Why? Anyone who hinders or makes stumble these weaker ones, it were better that a millstone were hung around his neck and thrown into the depths of the sea. 
Do you see how all of this comes together? Verse 7, 8, and 9. We are not going to do these today. I'm just going to read them because this really awesome chapter gets awesomer. Okay? Here we go. Why? For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the what? Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Do you know how big those three verses are? Those are huge verses, and there's no way in 15 minutes I can deal with that. How many get what's going on with this weaker, stronger thing? It's a big deal. It's a very big deal. Now, in reality, <clears throat> some people go way overboard, especially in our entitlement country that we live in. You called me by the wrong pronoun. How do you deal with that? How do you love that person? By the way, are we to love that person? How do we do that? Can we do that without going against God's Word? I think there's a way of doing that. What about uh, the wrong party? This, this, this hits me in the chest every time. I get angry at the media and the wrong party. Let me ask you, though, is that right party going to save us? Not at all. This is, this, is the thorn, this is the problem that I get mad, but yet i gotta, I got to be honest and biblical. All politicians are liars. They are. And as, in essence, they will say what helps them the best and neglect the rest. The reality is that our salvation is not there, but they too need people to love them. Do they not? What about the media? Oh, we're getting worse and worse. Someone needs to love them and show them the truth. Do they not? This is where we need to step up as Christians. It's easy to get mad. I get mad a lot when I listen to the news. But you know what? God is sovereign. God is in control. Absolutely in control. And my job is not to get mad at them. My job is to love them and serve them somehow by serving God, right? Not serving self, serving God. And that's, it's so hard. But folks, that's what we've been called to do. The issue is, are we? Are we really doing that? Are we living the Republican life? Trying to figure out how they cheated again. Listen, whether they did or did, well, I'm sure they did somewhere. <laughs> but I'm sure everybody cheats the best they can. The reality is, we can't control that. True? If you're a Christian here, you should vote. You should. That's being a good citizen that God has called us to do. Vote and vote, vote and vote. But secondly, firstly, really, we serve God. We serve Him by serving others and loving others. And the political system does not help us do that. And we can easily be entranced in that and entangled in it. Be careful. Be careful. There are people in this world 
that we have all witnessed that have been horrible, wicked, nasty people. Some, a Jeffrey Dahmer, one of them. Do you know Jeffrey Dahmer? Do you know what happened at the end of his life? Someone cared enough to give him the gospel and he got saved. Do you know there are people like that all over the world? I, I think it's, since we're talking politics a little bit, I just want to be practical here. Just look at the difference between um, our Vice President Mike Pence. Has anybody listened to him? The character of that man. Why? The reason I bring that up is how many have seen the last few weeks of... Uh, He's, his book has come out, and so every single media wanted to get him to throw Trump under the bus. How many, how many know what I'm talking about? They wanted him to ridicule him and tear him down. He didn't do it once. Did he have a right to? Oh, are you kidding? Kill him. Sure, maybe, but he didn't once. Why? There's something different about him, and I'm not advocating for him for... What I'm saying is this, a Christian lives differently in the culture of this world, and you can see it. You can see it, because why? They're serving the Lord Monday through Saturday, and Sunday included. Every day is important, serving God. Amen? All right, difficult passage, very difficult. Hopefully there's some gems in there you can meditate on throughout the week. Before Mr. Gaiman comes up here, I will say this. <clears throat> this is Potluck Sunday, which doesn't make it a better Sunday, but it is Potluck Sunday. <laughs> and all of you are welcome to stay for dinner with us to fellowship around the food that God has given to us. But also, I encourage you, talk about these things that we just talked about. Think about them. It's important. Everyday life. How many can see everything we talk about? Everyday life. Everyday life. How is it applying to your life? Mr. Gaiman, can you come and close the word, please? Please stand, and I will dismiss us in prayer. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that it is so practical for us. I pray that we would be people that would not leave here and forget what we've heard and go along our merry way living our self-centered lives but we would take the power of these words to heart and the scriptures would change us and cause us to live for you always in jesus name amen